good day to all of you folks. This is Jeff Morton with Returning to Eden and my co-host, Dr. Dina Dye. Hello, Dina. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? I'm good. It's, uh, I guess it was just time to do another show, huh? <laughs> it absolutely is. We've got a lot to cover. Uh, there's a wow. whole lot going on, but uh, I think we kind of wanted to go back into history a little bit so, and, bring, and then bring it up to date. Yeah, and the heart of the program is returning to Eden, returning to the place of his presence, which is what this show is all about. And one of the things that we is a cornerstone to, to returning to Eden is to try to bring our generation and our culture back to the culture of the Bible and back to the content by which the writers, you know, express their written word to us, inspired by God. Absolutely. We 100 are 100% convinced of that. But we find, and the reason this show exists, is that our cultural content or context of the Bible, uh, I said yesterday, as a matter of fact, Dana, and maybe you can echo on this, uh, were Paul, writer of most of the New Testament alive today, he would probably cut his wrists. Now, I know that's a bold statement, but the more that I read and study the culture that he was in, which was very Hellenistic, he didn't live in a Catholic or Christian culture. He lived in a Hellenized culture, and he was fighting and pushing back against Hellenism and the gods of the Greek and Roman Empire. And also he was fighting back the, 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 um, the, the elites of his day. Uh, but they weren't fighting the Christian Catholic context. They were fighting all these different gods and all this... Uh, the, the parameters by which Paul was dealing with were huge. And, of course, part of our culture today is born from that. And so we want to kind of go there today and just talk a little bit about why content matters. Dean, I'll let you yeah. jump in. I always say, you know, context is king. And we simply have to look at, you know, the history, the language, and the culture of the period of time we're evaluating or studying. I think it's very significant because we're talking thousands of years of a context that involves what we would call myth, and that is, you know, the world of gods and goddesses. By the time we get to the Age of Enlightenment, the 1700s and forward, we have done a major shift out of that world to the world of rationalism and science. And so our Western culture today is really... Uh, and, and our country is founded in those roots. So we are far, far, far from understanding the origins of all this. So we, today we want to talk about, we want to get back to the very beginning as best we can and look at the culture and context from that period of time because if we don't do that, we end up erring in our understanding and interpretation of the Bible and we, we go off into left field. And if we remove the foundation, the context from uh, what's being said, the narratives that are being told, this is why we end up today in a world of over-spiritualization. We have no other place to go. You're either in the, the context, the foundation, the history, the culture, you're examining that, you can make an application. You remove out that foundation and all you're left with is making spiritual application and nothing else. And then we're just off in left field. So we're trying to kind of pull people back 
get them to get them grounded and help them to understand the context and then you can move forward from there but without that really uh, I think you're just lost um, I think disregarding context allows you to be lied to to be hoodwinked and to lose the most important thing about the Bible and that's the truth yes and you know to just to echo that very thing um, you know if we I often hear in particular the Christian uh, community will say well you know God's in charge and uh, he, he's got everything under control and I hear that and that's kind of passe that's like a blanket statement saying that I don't need to know any of this stuff and yet the God that we're all talking about purposed that information thousands of years ago he used those cultures those time frames and the world of men based on how it was 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, to give us a snapshot of the kingdom that he is introducing into this place. And so if we take out of context what Moses is talking about, or if we take out of context what the writers are talking about, if we take out of context the New Testament or the letters that compile most of the New Testament, and we turn it into a sea of misunderstanding, then we end up with where we are today, which is content is really irrelevant. The literal reading of the Bible's translated materials by various groups that were full of replacement theology in, over the last 1,800 years becomes the heart and soul of our understanding of the biblical narrative. And unfortunately, what has been produced from that is chaos. We have 36,000 different denominations plus talking about one God, and the divisions amongst those 36,000 denominations is gigantic. So where do you fit all this together? So when you go back and you start looking at context, you begin to realize that those people were very human, not very spiritual. And so we have to give them back their humanity and understand better what they were trying to convince their audience to understand, which didn't take the kind of explanation we need because they understood the culture that they were living in. That's kind of why we wanted to do this show today. And Dina, you brought up something on a Facebook post talking about the content of when in Rome do as Rome does. And just briefly go back over that so people have an understanding of why this matters, if you could. Yeah, and, and I do want to, um, to talk some, I think, about uh, myth because that's really the key in all of this. Uh, and and we, I won't do it right this second. So one of the things uh, people were writing a lot about because of what we're dealing with today and how, uh, you know, the issue of civil rights and our constitutional rights and where do we push back. And, you know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That was the one question that they had. Well, it wasn't the one question, but the, the key question that the, the church had in Germany, World War II, the Lutheran Church, and then of course he, he founded the Confessing Church, is where is the line in the sand? Where is the place in which I, we push back against you know, the, the, the German government? So I, people were texting and emailing and asking, okay, you know, we're supposed to submit to the authorities of the land. And uh, I thought, you know what, I think maybe it's time for us to have a little conversation here. 
So, uh, you know, this is taken from Rome, uh, the, the Book of Romans, and, and Paul speaking. And uh, so I went back and just did, had a little blurb on face, Facebook, and I think probably a lot of people listening saw that. But uh, we had no context. We had no understanding that the, 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 the Jewish communities were very solid within Rome. They had their own political structure, which they had had for a very long time. Of course, the, the, there was a movement out of Israel all around the, the Roman Empire. And because Judaism was an ancient, quote, ancient religion, Rome gave their blessing in terms of setting up, uh, setting up their government. So how they set up their government within the Roman structure, of course, was through the synagogue, essentially. But they also organized courts. They had their own, basically, system of justice, courts of justice. And they created within the synagogue structure, you know, a variety of institutions. And so they elected their own officials within that structure. And so uh, when you go back and you read the entire book of Romans, that's key. Don't just read verse 4 and the verse after and not even just the chapter. You need to have a sense of the entire book. We find out that these Jewish communities were their own little fiefdoms. And so the call here is for the community to adhere to, um, to, the, how, to submit to the authority of the synagogue leadership, the structure that was in the city and it was not to the political entity of the Roman government. That's a whole other world and, you know, certainly functioning, but that's a different, that's a whole different thing. So that we can see if we have a structure in place, um, the church structure, you know, the, the hierarchy of that, we can see that we can work with that and submit to that. But submitting to unjust laws <laughs> that violate our constitution and our civil liberties, uh-uh. Okay? So that's just my opinion. And, and again, you know, when it came down to that subject, Rome was an autocratic government. The people didn't have a say in what was, what was to be done. They, you know, there was freedom in the sense that you paid your taxes and you had two classes of people. You had the elites and then you had the, the, uh, the common folk. Uh, but everybody followed whatever the dictates were that Rome put out there. But we have to keep in mind, you know, just like we don't pay Canada's taxes, Israel didn't didn't pay. They didn't. They weren't subservient to the government of Rome unless they stepped out of line with however right. Rome wanted things done. But within their culture, they had their own freedoms. They had their own authority. They had their own courts. And by the time Yeshua Jesus showed up, everything was in chaos. Kind of where we're headed today. Absolutely, but. We, we, well, we in that verse, go ahead. Well, I just you know also talks further down in the chapter about giving your tax, paying your taxes, which is more than likely talking about the temple tax. They would have sent the temple tax back to uh, Jerusalem. So that, and also the structure of the time was what we call the Pax Romana, which is a time of peace. So you, uh, the blessings of. Uh, of the peace of Rome, <laughs> you know, kept order in the empire, and you benefited from that. Even though the, the Jewish community had its own structure, it benefited from Pax Romana, and that was uh, under uh, Augustus Caesar. And that, that was important, that there was this, you know, time in which you, you did, although you couldn't vote, obviously, for Caesar, right? <laughs> like that, but 
um, you did reap the, the reward of that time of peace. So, so I'm reading these two books. Uh, there's a, a volume one and a volume two. It's called Paul in the Roman or the Greco-Roman World. And uh, Rico Cortez flashed this up, and of course, a friend of mine bought it, and I went and borrowed it from him. And uh, the the thing that rings true as I read this these volumes, and I'm only in the first book, is that it's kind of key to understand that Paul was pushing back against Hellenism and the gods of Greek and Roman mythology. And so, Gina, having said that, let's jump into mythology so that people have a better understanding. I mean, when Paul and the disciples understood who the God of Israel was, mythology kind of took a back seat, and that was that was created pandemonium in that culture. And I'll let you jump in. Oh, my gosh, yeah. We're talking thousands of years of this. I mean, going back to what we have in the history that we know, at least 4,500 to 5,000 BCE is a world of, of myth, gods, and goddesses. That's how they're, that was the structure of their world. That went on for a really long time. And, of course, by the time we get to the Roman Empire and, and, and ancient Greece, my goodness, it's gods and goddesses on steroids. Honestly, I don't know how they kept track of what God was responsible for what. Apparently they did. So... Here we go. I mean, if we do not understand the concept of myth and the world of myth, we don't, we're going to have a very difficult time understanding the Bible. And this is probably going to frustrate people because we approach the Bible through the lens of the Age of Enlightenment, through rational, scientific. Okay, and that was not their world. Which isn't to say they weren't brilliant in their understanding of science and you know how things worked. Not, none of that. But it's just not the structure of their world. So myths. Um, that was myths were the essence of their culture. So the myths would tell about the gods, what the gods were like, who the humans were, how gods and humans interrelated, um, how the whole big picture worked together. So what myths did was they communicated um, what we would call truths or timeless truths from the ancient or by the ancient culture in order for them to make sense of their world because every culture wants to make sense of the world around them how does this world work and function it's just they did it in the context of myth and so myths became a, a window into reality so what we do is we separate myths from reality they're two different things reality is truth and myth is fiction right but that's not how right. they, they it. And so myth for them was making a statement about a current reality. The problem was they presented it in symbolic form or, you know, metaphorical and imagery, metaphorical pictures and imagery. And that's just, we don't, I mean, I don't look out at a tree, you know, and, and see it in terms of metaphor. <laughs> you know, it's a tree for heaven's sakes. So I'm going to give you a description tell you how it works and what it does, they're going to look at it and tell you and connect it to the gods. So the tree trunk rep would represent the king. At, you know, so that, that's just completely out of, our, out of our realm. So the myth is basically an expression of, of what man understood at that time. So what I want to say is even though something is in mythological language, it does not mean it's fiction. And this does not reduce the Bible to fiction and fairy tales. 
Right. And so today, if we were to say, if somebody says to you the Bible is just myth, you are going to have a cow, right? <laughs> because they're saying your Bible is just filled with primitive stories, primitive people, and it's just fiction and false, and it's a world of gods and goddesses and, you know. And, and that's just to jump in here real quick. That's what the Age of Enlightenment did. Okay. So, so go ahead, Dina. I'll let you, let you continue. So all I'm going to say is, even though it's written in a language of myth, it's designed, you know, we need to figure out how to make sense of what the text is saying. So I'm going to give you um, an example, maybe. Uh, the Tower of Babel is a great example, okay? So how do we look at the Tower of Babel? We are going to look at it in very concrete terms that it is this thing that they built. Um, it's, how, how shall I put this? It's a historical count of the origins of different nations and languages, right? Okay. Yes. Maybe it needs to be brought back to the context in which it was written. So the Tower of Babel... <laughs> looked like a mountain and was most likely a ziggurat in ancient Mesopotamia. Now, uh, historians and scholars believe that the, the Tower of Babel actually was built by Hammurabi. Uh, that would have been about 17, 18, 1900 BCE, somewhere I can't remember exactly. And, um, okay, let me back up for a minute. Uh, I need to I need to say something that's <laughs> going to be a little challenging. So the myths, it seems, from Genesis one through Genesis eleven, were written. Those those chapters are actually myths, and don't you know don't have a cow, but they were written to push back against the mythological world of the time, because. The stories, okay, so the creation, we have the creation myth of ancient Babylon, which is, we call Enuma Elish. And then we have Noah's Ark and Flood myth at the time, which, which was the Epic of Gilgamesh. And so I personally believe that Genesis 1 through 11 was most likely written down uh, during or post-exile, Babylonian exile. So the perspective perspective of the exile is there and so the question is you you have the myth of the nations the creation myth of the nations how is Israel going to take that myth and turn it into their own and show how their God is different than the gods of the nation how are they going to rework it how are they going to challenge it and how are they going to subvert what the nations have determined is the myth of how creation came forth. So now we have Genesis chapter 1 into 2. Do you see what I'm saying? And same with, go ahead. I, I understand completely what you're saying, but let, let me just kind of qualify what you're saying. Because, folks, we have in our brain, and Gina, don't lose your place on this, but I want to address something. Okay. I ask people, when you, when you hear the creation story and God breathed into the nostrils of the man, he became a living being, and he placed him into the temple, are you seeing and visually in your brain a clump of dirt, now a human being that has life in it, that's put over a fence, that's butt naked, and now all of a sudden the world began? If you see the Bible that way, then you're, you have no understanding of the mythological thing that Dina's saying and what she's saying is the writer of this 
particular passages used that whole mythological conundrum that the world was steeped in to bring it back to one God creating all things, and that was the challenge in writing that in that world. But he used that world to write about, well, you guys got all this crazy stuff. Let's go take it all back to one God. And that's what the book of Genesis is trying to communicate. It's not interested in when it happened or how it happened. It's talking about pulling back from the nations all the mythological stories that are out there and giving credit to one God. That's what she's talking about. Why don't you continue, Dina? Yeah, no, and so, you know, kind of back to the Tower of Babel, which I mentioned earlier, which is in uh, Genesis, it's in 10, right? <laughs> Genesis 10, just had a blank there. Um, is a reworking of a mythology as well, but it's in the context of that world. So if we're going to look, the Tower of Babel was a, likely a ziggurat. Now, the, the ziggurat in the ancient world, they were usually seven, uh, seven terraced steps, and one, uh, basically they were designed so that when the god was on the top, which is, uh, sanctuaries and temples were built on the top of the ziggurats. And that is, that comes from initially, I, I don't have time to go into all this, and you're going to have to read my new book, because uh, it's all going to be in there. I'm going to explain all of this. But initially, the mountain was the key structure, and you would build a sanctuary on top of the mountain. Well, the problem in the ancient Mesopotamian world down in the alluvial plain is there weren't any There's mountains. No mountains. <laughs> right. Flat, you know, totally flat. So they built an imitation mountain, which was a ziggurat, which had these seven ascend, and they likened the seven ascending terrace things to the seven planets and, you know, all that kind of, I mean, they all, you know, they tied it all together. So instead of building a sanctuary on top of a mountain, they built a sanctuary on top of the ziggurat, okay? So the, the, the sanctuary on top of the ziggurat was for the god, whoever the god was over the city. If you had like the, um, Uruk, the city of Uruk, you would have the goddess Inanna. That's her domain. And so at the top of the, of the ziggurat is the domain of the god, and the god picks the king, and the king has his seat, in his throne is in the, in the sanctuary there. So when, when, if a priest was ascending the ziggurat, he was ascending into heaven, because that's how they viewed it. Because the goddess and the king, their domain was heaven. Now, the ziggurat was built so that the god could come down, not for the people to go up. Obviously, right. the priests had, had access. And so that was the, the Tower of Babel being a ziggurat wasn't about the god or goddess. It, so it, it says in there that God came down to see what they were doing. So they weren't building a ziggurat so that they could go up and become, you know, so they could go up. The idea of their building the ziggurat or, you know, building the tower was to basically replace gods with themselves and right. God is reworking this scenario and, and if it turns out that it was written from the Babylonian perspective it was think about Israel in exile in captivity 
And actually, under Nebuchadnezzar, the I can't get, I'm not going to get into the details of the ziggurat. The one that was built by Hammurabi was expanded by Nebuchadnezzar when they were in captivity. They would have seen that. It wasn't the original. The original goes back over a thousand years before that, but they would have seen Nebuchadnezzar expanding it. So there they are in exile. They see this oppressive monstrosity that replaces their God. And what has happened to them? They have been sent into exile. And think about this. If, when, you, when you lose your identity as a people, one of the things you lose is your language. So as they're exiled into Babylon, they, they lost their language, and it was replaced with another language called Aramaic. Okay? So their language has been confused. They don't speak the language of Babylon, and they've been scattered and confused by language, and that lang the confusion of the language shows that they've lost their identity. They lost their identity, they lost their temple, they lost their... The, uh, they lost everything, their institution. And so the reworking of that myth is saying, you know, God allowed it to happen, but he's the one. He is their God, not all the gods of the ancient world that sit on top of this, in the sanctuary on top of their ziggurats. You see what I'm saying? Does that yeah, make sense? And, and the other thing, too, is when we talk about the world of heaven, and you brought it up in your first two books. It's a tripart kind of mindset. It's not some place in a galaxy far, far away. It's in the canopy in the earth. And so these mountain temples were to reach the canopy in the earth. So I, I always like to say if we can just put in our brain that God created all of this and then he moved into it. He didn't uh, put it here and then suspend it in the universe and say, okay, I'll be back one day. No, this, this place exists because of his presence, but we need to go back and understand what that means. So when you talk to Moses about heaven, he's not thinking Star Wars. He's thinking on the top of the mountains in the canopy above the plain or the field. Again, and Dina mentioned this earlier, when we talk about metaphors and analogy, their world was agricultural. Brad Scott would would take this to another whole level if you were part of this conversation. So the, they didn't have, you know, the Hubble telescope and rockets and, and television and digital electronics. They had trees and grass and fields. And this is how they communicated their world to reflect certain things. So, for example, if you say now, and this is something I wanted to bring about when you were talking, the, their world was very oratory. They had a whole concept of speech and everything that we're reading when we read this. We're reading a whole lot of imagery and, and analogy and hyperbole and personification because that's the world that they lived in, but it was tied to mythological concepts, not, um, uh, how would you say, paragraphs and subparagraphs and titles and periods and exclamation parts and book form. They're writing based on a speech pattern describing an agricultural world using that agricultural world to define things like gods and mountains and seas and trees. All of this kind of stuff, when you go back and you start unraveling the spiritual identifications we've placed on this, this is a very human world that these people are living in, 
And that's the world that God used to get the information to us. That's why it's important to go back and get the content. Dina, you want to continue with this whole concept of uh, mythology and how they would have viewed all of these things because that's what we're reading when we're reading the Bible. You just reminded me of something I, I want to interject because this concept of rhetoric and oratory, you know, we see it strong. If anyone who's familiar with the Roman culture and Greek, obviously, the, like Paul spoke at the Agora, and you know, you would get on a high mountain and you would speak because that's where the gods were. The gods were on top of the mountain in their sanctuary. And the top of the mountain in the sanctuary was where the oracle of the God was. The oracle of the God meant that's where the God spoke. So Paul is subverting Roman Greek power by getting up on the mountain and speaking. So we see, you know, Moses on a mountain and all that. But think about creation. The whole the dynamic of creation is God said. And God said. And so we have what we call the seven sort of speeches of God in, in creation through the days. And we have a repeat of that when you see the formation of the tabernacle. A lot of scholars have connected the this, this seven speeches. So we go back to this place of oratory and oracle. Like that's so foreign to us. <laughs> Some God right. sitting on a mountain speaking. But Moses entered into the fire with the sapphire uh, paving stones and God spoke, and then God, what he spoke, he put on the ta what they call the tablets of destiny. Think about Yeshua on the Sermon on the Mount. When he goes up on the Sermon on the Mount, we don't know what mount, and so what do we do? We argue over the mount. It's not important. Mountains in the picture, ancient school. Right. Yeah. So he goes up somewhere, and he sits. You know, you don't, usually when you're talking, you don't, say things in those, you know, he, he went there, he went up, and he sat down kind of thing. There's a reason they're emphasizing the sat down part, because he sat and he spoke. Right. And he, he, it, that was the oracle that he spoke to the people. This is how this kingdom looks, okay? So the, the, the setting is all very mythological because it takes us all the way back to the very beginning and the whole thing with mountains and the top of mountains or sanctuaries and oracles, okay? He's using that. But we don't even, you know, we just blow by it. it is, and so many times we see Yeshua go up on a mountain and sit and speak. And you know what I mean? It has a context. And in, in some sense it has a mythological context. So the idea, well, never mind. I well, hope that culture, all makes sense. The culture, see, when we begin to put Yeshua, Jesus, back in the culture from which he came, which would have been the fourth millennium, and then we start trying to understand what that culture was like and how the people were, uh, then the Bible truly does start making sense. And I like what John Walton said when he was here. He said, God used people, men and women, to tell his story. So all of us are listening to an interpretation, but we have to give that interpretation a foundation in the culture from which it was derived. And what we do is reread the Bible and go, oh, the, the gigantic boat landed on a mountain. Instead of looking at it and going, well, what he's really saying is they went into the place of the presence of God 
and then the eighth day began anew, and we see a recreation story. But that's not even in our brain. We see a gigantic boat. Dina, remember I said, right. uh, let's go visit that giant boat? Yeah. <laughs> but see, the context is not about a giant boat, guys. It's about a and recreation. And here's where the story of Noah and the flood is, is what I would call, it's like a subversive act pushing back against the gods of the world at the time. Right. Exactly. So it's it's no small thing that the ark landed on top of a mountain, as I have been saying, on top of the mountain is where the sanctuary is built, where the God dwelled and his king ruled on his behalf or her behalf. So it's a, it was a subversive act. And so this idea, I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. Mountains are, I, I you know, you know me. I mean, I've always got a new filter for you, right? <laughs> Right. It's a yeah. temple. It's you know, it's kingship so and stuff. Now my my latest filter going through the book of uh, or writing about Noah and the Ark is mountains, because they're the first fixed point of creation. This idea of it, it come the mountains were birthed out of water and then grew up and became this structure. But mountains in mountains were definitely like a governmental structure because on the top is where rulership functioned. So the folks are down at the bottom, the peons, while you know considered earth, and then you know up on top on the mountain is where the king and the gods operated from. So I well two things I I thought would to try to uh, I I wanted to mention here. I this is a, I wrote this in my book and it kind of blew me away as a quote from a guy named Lang, which I actually found in uh, Morales's book Temple uh, Tabernacle Refigured, and he said entering the sanctuary, uh, ascending the temple tower. So the temple again was on top of the mountain and that was called the temple tower, and raising his hands to heaven in a gesture a gesture excuse me affirming contact had been achieved okay mm -hmm. so you think about the king the king when he was enthroned he ascended the mountain he went into the sanctuary and he sat on his throne and ruled and reigned okay now this made me wonder if the story cuz i find this one of the more puzzling stories in uh with moses uh think about it i think it's uh exodus 17 remember her and Aaron put a stone under Moses so he could sit. And then they supported him by, you know, hold, he was holding his hands up and they were holding up his hands. So we have this picture of these three guys ascending to the top of the hill, Moses sitting, and these guys holding up his hands as in affirming contact had been re reached between them and God and what happened he is a picture of a king seated on the throne contact had been achieved with Yahweh with God and what was the result Joshua defeated the Amalekites hmm. isn't that interesting that is very interesting yeah so all this stuff is in there and you know we just read the story and go well that's really weird <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's really weird. He's just sitting there on a stone them holding his hand. What was the purpose of him, them holding his hands up? So confirmation and contact affirmed, achieved between them and Yahweh. Um, I was trying to find, and I can't find it, uh, 
think about. Uh, we got about, we got about five minutes left, so oh, um, <clears throat> we'll kind of scurry along to those five minutes. But go ahead and continue, Dr. Dye. Okay. So mountain basically represented empire, right? With government on top of the mountain, which represented heaven. It wasn't literally heaven. It wasn't outer space. It wasn't people floating around in another cosmos. It was the structure of government. And so then you'll find as we go, you know, any the whole, you, you got to read the book of Daniel because now you see all this stuff with, you know, empires, the structure of, of them representing animals and, you know, all that stuff. But I don't have time for that. But I wanted to address Yeshua's comments <laughs> about uh, if you have faith, say to this mountain, be removed <laughs> and cast into the sea. I'm glad okay. you're going here. <laughs> Is this not the classic? So what I write in my book, it, you know, we're not, I'm not standing out in the middle of a field, staring at a mountain, <laughs> conjuring up faith and imagining the mountain, uh, the Sandias, which are outside my door, moving to another physical location. What is it that he's actually saying? So I tell you, you need to go back and look at the context of the chapter. Uh, you can find it in Mark 11 or Matthew 21. Either one has that same thing. Um, so if you go back to the beginning of Mark 11 and you read the chapter, it's going to blow your brains, okay? Because Yeshua arrives at the summit of the Mount of Olives. Okay, the, ma the summit of the Mount of Olives was the place of the altar of the red heifer, the place of purification for the priests. And we have two villages up on the top of the mountain. One's called Bethany and the other one's Bethphage. So we don't exactly know the meaning. Be Bethany could be Bethany, which means house of, the, of ripe fruit. And Bethphage actually means the house of unripe fruit. Bethphage is the place where the priests lived who served the top of the Mount of Olives. That is the altar there of the red heifer. And what other, you know, I don't know, we don't really have much information about what other structural things there. But again, it's on the top of a mountain. So the priestly class lived in Bethphage. And that's the place where Yeshua went. And so he he's basically going to be speaking against the... Um, against the corruption of the temple leadership, because that's the place where they live. So the, the people respond to him being on the mountain, best edge, and it's the whole colt story. Go find me a colt or a donkey would be more accurate, because kings, when they were crowned, rode donkeys. Okay, They would ride down to a spot and be coronated. So he wants a donkey. The, the, the disciples get him a donkey, and the crowd goes, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our kingdom, of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. This is all acclamation language for coronation of the king. So from there, he drives out the money changers, right? So he is making a statement about the corruption in the temple, and he is the real king, not them. He rails against them and the ruling class, calling them a den of thieves and all that sort of thing. And then the disciples go by this <clears throat> fig tree that's all shriveled up at the root, and then, and of course I've talked endlessly about fig trees and all that, and they represent kings and blah, blah, blah. 
That was the point at which Yeshua said, or spoke, speak to the mountain and cast it into the sea. So, this is not literal, this is metaphorical, this is mythological. He was condemning the temple leadership, and he was saying to the people, that kingdom is coming down. Yeah. That power base is coming down, and, and there is going to be a new kingdom, a new mountain structure that's in place where you will worship in spirit and in truth, if you will. That this, his kingdom would replace the current power base of, of the temple, the, one, the temple leadership, who had corrupted the temple. And it was this kingdom that would bring forth life instead of the, these human rulers who brought forth death because what they produced greed. It was a place that had become corrupt through you know, extortion and bribery, etc., etc. And casting it into the sea was just casting it back to the nations. That kingdom would go back from which it came, the nations, and a new kingdom would be erected. So, in closing out the show, guys, you know, Dina, this, I mean, I, we could do this all day long with certain, certain passages that, unfortunately, a lot of the Christian world, our world, hangs its hat on, and the content is so misaligned with what was actually happening. And I want to close the show by bringing all of that forward and simply saying this. The power of the media in this world today has completely eviscerated the foundations of biblical truth. And we are walking around here listening to the gods of the media instead of doing our own research and understanding a little bit more about the Godhead that we serve who moved into this place. And I would just encourage people, Dina, we talked before the show, you know, I want to tap just a little bit on the, the CCP, as you would call it, CCP virus. Oh, yes. We, I, I watch people in their cars. And, Dean, I want you to tell that story. I watch people in their cars with their masks on, the windows rolled up, driving around. And I watch people look at me as though I'm an alien uh, because I don't have a mask on. I'm in the plumbing arena. I'm in and out of these places. But I also am doing my own research and following along as much information. And the problem we have is everybody's formulating an opinion about all of this and blasting it all over the Internet, but it's all based on chaos and half-truth, untruth, and flat-out lies. And the media, when you look at our nation, as the media has perpetrated this enormous thing across the country that is taking away our rights, and making us tone deaf to the freedom that this nation was built on. And Dina, I'm going to give you the last word on this because I know you and I are both passionate about this. But we have to give our allegiance back to the God of creation, not the media, towers of media. And we have yeah. to kind of look at the world. This would have been called a plague in the ancient world. And I'll let you let you end the show, dear. Well, and we are, you know, with everyone on the Internet all the time, all day, because they don't have anything else to do and they're not working, uh, we are now drowning in a sea of propaganda and lies. And that's what context does. When you destroy context, you basically allow censorship to come in. Okay? And that's what they're, in the mainstream media, whatever, take your pick, that's what they're using. And they're, you know, they're, they're censoring voices of reason, reality, you know, real data. I mean, in my state, 
the data you, you just have to throw it out the window now we and I mentioned I'm sorry we're gonna go longer than than we thought I mentioned about helicopters they they shut down the helicopter flying in from the, the Navajo, Navajo nation they wanted to bring in 1900 uh, CCP virus cases they're still doing it they're flying people in here in the middle of the night in helicopters from Denver from Lubbock from Phoenix to fill up our hotel, uh, fill, hotel fill up our hospitals so our numbers are completely out of whack that everything is a lie and we, we heard from a doctor in one of the hospitals they're testing people seven times and once they have two or three times in which they're negative then they can go free they don't the numbers that they report on the number of cases include testing one human being seven times okay this is just a teeny eeny bit of the lies that are coming forward and we are drowning in this and when you destroy context this is what you end up and I'm just gonna say in terms of today this this virus the CCP virus has more civil rights than you do and that this virus is freely able to violate the Constitution without consequence this virus is making more money than you are because every time we bring in a patient from Denver or Lubbock the hospital gets 40 grand especially if they go on to an, a ventilator so we are drowning in this and people you are going to have to step back uh, you know I know it, it's just it's madness it's just madness and so we we, we have to find a way um, to exalt the truth and the truth of our God and bring it back into the culture and into the insanity because that's the only way we're going to restore order this this is things going off the rails if we don't restore order and the only people that can are us now what if our theology is out of order okay so again critical to understand what the Bible's saying because this idea of, of empire and power and um, what uh, you know what the power structure does to the folks is just a repeating pattern going all the way back to the garden so we're I'm glad you said that on full display I'm glad you said that because folks the, the concept of Democrat and Republican is not a new concept you I can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden to the Temple of, of Eden and, and point out the 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 two different mindsets in this place one that listens and honors the God of the Bible and one that does not so when you put a name on it in our culture whether it be a put and the whole Bible is all about politics folks I got bad news for you the whole Bible is addressing kingdoms and political structures and the king of God the Israel Jesus Yeshua you Moses just go down the list pushing back against the people who are prophets okay so this is not anything new the problem is we have a media that has placed itself in between the two that is the line that is drawn in the sand and unfortunately the God of the Bible is kicked completely out of the equation because now we have a media controlling both sides of the fence and for us to not understand the context, the biblical context, the heritage that we have inherited through the blood of Messiah, for us to not understand our role in all of this is tragic. 
because the chaos is moving across us as though we don't even exist. And that's a problem. And that's why you and I are, Dina, it's so frustrating because we have this spiritual identification to the God of the Bible instead of being the frontline warriors that being in covenant with him requires. This drives me insane, and that's why we do the show, because we're trying to return you back to a covenant relationship with the God of the Bible, because he has chosen you to be a spokesperson for him in a world of chaos. And if you're sitting there waiting for an airlift, I call it an airlift, you can call it a rapture if you want to, then you're not, you're, you're feckless. You're not participating, and the, you're getting your marching orders from these news media outlets, 24-hour cycles instead of the word of the living God, and that's a problem in the community of the house of the Lord. And I, don't get me started here, but I know we're supposed to end the show here any time now. I've taken a step back because I'm sitting here going, where is the warriors like David and Joshua? Where are they? Go well, ahead. they are out there. We're all the warriors now. now. <laughs> Here's the key. There's two kingdoms. <laughs> you choose which one you want to worship, which God of which one you want to worship. But out in terms of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, we are called to bring his kingdom into the world. So that's, that's your mission. That's your mandate. And that's the only way you're going to bring sanity around you and restore order is to expand his kingdom into the world. We have to return to Eden, folks. Dr. Dina Dye, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. We'll have to do this again we'll do sometime. It again, okay? <laughs> yeah. God bless you, folks. Thank you for joining us. We'll post the show here. Uh, Dina, what's the title of the show? You had 24 hours. What do you got? <laughs> I don't know. Context is king. <laughs> All right, there you go. All right, we'll 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 see you guys the next time around. Thank you for joining us. This is Jeff Morton and Dr. Dina Dye. Dina Dye. Shalom, shalom. Yeah. Shalom, shalom. Bye bye.